It'll take him a second, but let me just get started. I want to welcome you, and I want to ho- just say I hope you had a fantastic summer. I had an interesting summer, to say the least, so I missed most of it uh, in a purple haze. But the bottom line was, I hope you had a really good summer. I understand it was a record-breaking summer, okay? And even though today's a little weird, I hope you're enjoying this sort of bonus month that we get here in September, which is always a nice little treat, okay? So, but having said that, I want to say that last week, in yet another of just those phenomenal sermons that Justine's been bringing us, uh, that what she talked, yeah, amen, huh? Uh, Yeah, And, and that's not to make you get a big head or anything, it's just... God's moving, okay? It's really cool. I know you don't worry about that, so. I'm so sorry I've said anything about any of that at this point in time. Sorry. (laughs) But they're phenomenal sermons. And what she said was, she said, consider this to be the first of the new year. Which was really interesting this year because normally in the Jewish calendar, the first day of the new year comes in September, October. This is about as early as it ever comes. I don't know if technically you could even get any earlier than the 4th of September, which would have been the Wednesday after your sermon, was the first day of the year according to the Jewish calendar, which is the one we all ought to be on, right? And what happens is Rosh Hashanah on that first day, and then there's 10 days that they call the High Holy Days, that culminate in Yom Kippur, which is also Day of Atonement, which is to say, what you do is, is that during these 10 days, you reflect on how the last year went, how you're doing. Uh, you know, you're reestablishing your foundations. You're reestablishing your connection with God. You're really, it's not just a moment. It's 10 days that you're assessing how you're doing in the Lord and how that relationship is going and all that kind of stuff. And then when you get to Yom Kippur, the most holy day of the year, what, what happens is, is that you make sacrifice because you now have had time enough for the Holy Spirit to speak to you about stuff you might not even have been aware of that's going on in your life. And so what happens is, is you get to Yom Kippur, they make the sacrifice. Remember, they take one of the goats, they cast lots, they take two goats, they take one of them, they slit the throat, they take the blood, they put some of the blood on the scapegoat, that's where the word comes from, and that's the one that they're going to shoo out into the wilderness. They take the other, the, another portion of the blood and they go behind the veil and they sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And they're saying, God, we recognize that we've sinned. We recognize that we've made choices that were not for you, that were against you. We recognize that we separate ourselves when we do that. And we're asking you to forgive our sins one more year. Now, of course, goat identified with sin, but the parallel is strong where what happens is when the perfect lamb of God, the innocent lamb of God comes, Christ, then of course those sacrifices are over because you're not looking forward a year to the lamb, you're looking backward to the lamb, which is what we do, right? The lamb who is Christ, right? Got it? So what I love about that calendar is, is that what God's doing is, is he's saying, at the beginning of the year, I want you to assess, reground, rework your foundation again. Get back to your foundation see how it's going, do something about it, real, right? Well, that's what we're going to do. And we're starting it today, and we're going to be doing some other things throughout the coming weeks that you're going to hear about. But the bottom line is, is that we're going to be looking at some foundational stuff. Some of you have heard some of this or most of this before in various ways. But what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be Can I put it this way? Over the last weeks, there's been this phenomenal sort of detailed look at the various parts of the early parts of Luke. These chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And and the speakers have just done this beautiful job of really taking us in deeply to the Word. What we're going to do now is we're going to kind of pull back on the the controls of the plane, and we're going to take her up to about 50,000 feet, and we're going to fly over all of that stuff in a way Because as much as there's incredibly rich revelation to be had in the details, there's this incredibly rich revelation to be had when you see it all at once. Because in Luke, God does something which is extraordinary. He lays out the pattern of what it is to walk in Him in fullness. It's just this amazing thing, and it's particularly amazing if you're charismatic. Now, what does charismatic mean? Most of you know, but charismatic simply means this. We believe that the Holy Spirit actually still moves today, that he still comes upon people and moves through them to do God's work, right? And that that's how we do God's work. The Holy Spirit moves through us to do God's will. 
Now, there are people who say, no, that doesn't happen anymore. They're called cessationalists, and not sensationalists, cessational, right? Ceasing. And thank God, at this point in time, that whole body of thought has almost ceased. Because it doesn't stand up biblically, it doesn't stand up theologically, and it doesn't stand up experientially. There's just too much evidence in Scripture that we are supposed to be being empowered by the Holy Spirit to move and do God's will. There's too, too many reasons for it theologically, and we're a charismatic church as over half of the body of Christ is in the world today. They believe that the Holy Spirit moves, and it's getting way over half now, because what happens is, is people realize it happens, and then they kind of go, well, I guess that cessationist stuff doesn't, isn't so true. But let's look at something. Why do people ever get cessationist? Why do they ever think that way? Now, this is a challenge to us. Here's why. Because the miracles just aren't really happening. Let me make it clear now. This is a charismatic church, and I want to say every Sunday, every day of the week, there's a tremendous amount of what I would call, I would believe to be, I, I know to be in my own heart, to be the work of the Holy Spirit through people ministering. There's a tremendous amount of that kind of ministry that goes on here. It's one of the reasons why I love this church so much, is people are really willing to, to pursue that and to move in that and be, be, not be afraid of it and go after it. So there's a tremendous amount that happens that way, but just for the moment, I want you to step back and I want you to say, what if you're not a Christian and you're more of a sociologist and you're looking at this situation and you come in and you assess what's happening? What do you see? What can you see if you want to? Now, Mike Byron used to go to a church down in Palo Alto, basically, when he was going to Stanford, and it was a vineyard church, and it was a pretty famous vineyard church because the Holy Spirit moved a lot. And there's a girl who just recently, within the last year, produced a book about that church. And what she did, she's not a believer, and what she did is she looked at it as a social psychologist. And what she said was she tried to explain away everything that had happened in social psychological terms. Now here's what I want to say about charismatic churches. If you can do that successfully, we got a problem. Because in the ministry of Christ, despite the fact you could explain away a lot of things, because you know people can come up with all kinds of reasons and so on, and you can stretch things and make them, right? It, there are these other things where a man born blind suddenly sees. That's a little harder to dismiss, <laughs> isn't it? Right? I mean, you know, this church has seen many miracles. We've seen people be healed here, and in pretty verifiable ways. Other times, if a skeptic came in and wanted to explain it away, okay, great, you could do it that way. You know what I mean? But if you were sober about it, well, I would still argue we would find the evidence mounting on the other side. But we've seen a guy raised from the dead here. I mean, we've seen a lot of miracles here. But even then, here's my point. Here's the challenge to us charismatics. There's people that believe that the Holy Spirit moves. Is there anybody in this room that believes that God is doing everything that he could through us right now? Does anybody believe that? Don't you have a sense inside of yourself that as much as things do happen and as much as we're trying and as much as everything else that there is this gap between what God even wants to do and what he's able to do? And I'm not just at Lake Sam, but in the church as a whole. We can go around the world and we can say, you know, here's the way that Jesus says it, okay? I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works that I've done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. Even greater works. We could look around the world and we could say, around the world right now you could make that argument because there's some incredible things happening around the world. But you know what? Today and just today only, I don't want to be, I don't want to care so much about the world because I care so much about the American church. And I have this feeling that there's something, and I think I'm not the only one, right, that has this sense that there's something that's blocking. There's something that's not right. There's something that needs to happen for us to get to where God wants us to be. Isn't that right? Right? So that's what we're going to be doing. That's establishing our foundation again. So that's where we're headed. Who's our pre Oh, Ben Munger. Awesome. Ben Munger has been helping us on some strategic stuff. Uh, just, just, Ben, are you in a small group? Are you going to be in a small group this year? Because if you are, I want to be in your small group, wherever it is, and you want to be in his small group. You just want to be around Ben and Carla, okay? They're just awesome people. 
So Ben, pray for the sermon. Lift up another church too, would you? All right. Lord, I thank you for today. Uh, thank you for this weekend. Thank you for the church, uh, the church in general. And uh, specifically, Lord, I, I, uh, I lift up to you uh, the, the gamer church, that uh, the unique situation that they're in and the opportunities they have, Lord, that um, you, you would just empower them and uh, let, uh, uh, let the Holy Spirit flow through them. Uh, Lord, I, I pray the same for uh, our church, Lord, uh, for Kurt to, to speak your words and only Amen. your words. And uh, I pray that uh, we as the listeners would have ears to hear and uh, the determined passion to follow through. Thank you, Lord. Uh, Lord, we all love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Ben. Great prayer. Love that. How innovative. Uh, okay, so we're in our series, and it's empowered got this nice graphic. I like it. Uh, you know what I mean? This the Holy Spirit coming down upon. That's the sense of it and so on. All right. I, I do need to make a really quick little piece of, of house cleaning here. When we start talking about things charismatic, always remember that there's not just one flavor of charismatic. And if we were to be generalized about it, we could put in a spectrum sort of what we might call discerning charismatics and what we might call hyper-charismatics. Discerning charismatics I would define as people who understand that mob psychology is real. And it affects Christians as much as it does anybody else. And you put Christians in a, in a setting where things are happening and, and people may have a personal discernment against them, but it's happening and we get swayed by what is happening in that place. And the idea is, is maybe that's God. A lot of times it's not actually God. And the fruit over the long term demonstrates that it's not actually God. So a discerning Christian, there'd be a lot of discerning Christians in here. There's a lot of people that when I talk about all this stuff, you're kind of over here in this one ditch where you're just hearing about the fact that God moves in power. I mean, you knew about Jesus and you'd heard about him and so on, but this idea that the Holy Spirit moves through us and does ministry through us in powerful ways, healing people and so on, that's kind of that, that one ditch on the one side that's having a form of godliness but either not understanding or denying its power. But then there's this other ditch when you're trying to get up into discerning Christian that people tend to just pop past it and go into a hyper-Christianity. And this is the kind of Christianity where, can I just make it clear, people that are hyper-Christians, I was a hyper-charismatic. I was a charismaniac for years, okay? And I can tell you my motives were sincere. My belief was real. I, I had reasons for it, and I went into it, and I went into it in a way that all seemed right, and that's the whole key to how Satan perverts something. First of all, you've got to understand, in hypercharismania, there's a ton of God in there. Let me, let me put it this way. If I couldn't be on the high road, and I had to pick one of the two ditches, I'd pick the ditch where it's hyper. And the reason why is because at least they're trying. You know what I mean? At least they're going after it in a real way. And they're very sincere about what they're doing and so on. But Satan just has this little way of sort of just, just in ways that are almost imperceptible, this twisting and twisting and twisting until all of a sudden one day you just kind of go, how the heck did we get here? And it's, yeah, handling snakes would be one example of it. There would be a lot of contemporary examples of it too, even though that's still contemporary in the South. But, but you know, they're just, you just... Right? I, let me, let me kind of put it this way. Some of you will get the pun. All that glitters is not gold. Okay? And we just want to be aware of the fact that I'm going to say something. I think this body is filled with a lot of people who have been in movements that did go astray, and they have come back out. And thankfully, they've not gone back over, as some people do. Once you get sort of burned in the hypers, a lot of people will just pop back over and I just can't trust it, so I'm not going to try. A lot more, that's not, you can, it's hard to go to church if you feel like that. Because I'm talking about it every single week, and at some point in time, you just go someplace where it's easier to hear. You know, what you want to believe. But I'm talking about, let's get it right. Let's be discerning. Let's be real. Let's be authentic. Let's get it right. And let's not just get it right in some controlled fashion. Let's get it right in a way that it's fully, holy, and passionately God. Right? Not overboard, but God made us to be passionate beings, and we're supposed to be in a place of passion about the things of God. And I tell you what, when you see God move through you and do the things that he can do through you, it is quite exciting. So that's what we're going for, the real stuff. So having said that, what I want to do is now I want to take this pattern that I said. We're going to at 50,000 feet here, and we're just going to kind of fly over these four chapters pretty quickly. 
But I want you to see the pattern that God is establishing because it's the only place in the Bible where God establishes this pattern all in a very tight sense. It's actually found throughout the Bible, all the stuff we're talking about. But in Luke, in these first four chapters, God makes it super clear. So, first thing, born of the Spirit, right? Now, we're looking at Jesus' life. We're in chapter 1. How is Jesus born? Of the Spirit. His dad is not Joseph, the one that eventually marries the mom. Before the mom has relation with the man, the, the angel says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. See that? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The same God who breathed into a lump of clay and made that lump of clay, Adam, a living being, is now doing a work in Mary and creating a new kind of being. One whose lineage is not from Adam, but whose lineage is from God. See that? That's a new kind of being. And let me just make it clear. Anybody who ever gets saved, this is what's happened to you. In fact, if this hasn't happened to you, you're not saved. <laughs> because what happens is, is that when you accept what Christ has done for you on the cross, the Holy Spirit comes and overshadows you and makes a new nature, a new being in here. And anybody who has experienced that can say, yeah, there was a change in my life. And over the years, it's borne more and more and more fruit so that I know that it was real because it made this kind of a difference in my life. See what I mean? Now, when we say that, what we're saying is, let me show you, okay? We're saying that you, as you grow in Christ, he transforms you or he teaches you. The Holy Spirit is what? He's called what? A guide, a teacher. He's leading you into things. Now, this is the Holy Spirit inside, not the one upon, which we're going to look at. This is the Holy Spirit that's made you new and now lives in you. And so what we get is Jesus, who has been, he's gone with his family down to the feast in Jerusalem. He's only 12 years old. His family leaves. He stays behind. They don't know where he is. He said, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? But he's in the house, and now watch this. After three days, they found him in the temple complex, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. Now understand what this means. Jesus was able to talk to these teachers in an amazing way because he's God, right? No, we're going to see it again as we look at it. He emptied himself of what it was to be God that he might walk as a person. And in that, the Holy Spirit, whom he's known since conception and as a child is leading and guiding and teaching him, the Holy Spirit has brought him up to where by 12 years old, religious leaders are astounded at his understanding. Can I put that another way? They're blown away by the relationship that he has with God and the truth that he's able to articulate from that. You see that? Now, that's available to anybody. Again, God is establishing a pattern through Christ, but Christ is the firstborn of us who are the nextborn. And we follow the same pattern. And anybody who's been born again and is allowing the Holy Spirit to teach them is going to be transformed. And again, people who have allowed this to happen in their lives know that it's amazing what the Holy Spirit will teach you, right? I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff that he does. So there we go. And so what we say is, born of the Spirit produces fruit. That's what we're seeing in this pattern that's being laid out in Luke. By the way, that story of the 12-year-old, only found in Luke. And it's important because what God is trying to communicate through Luke is this pattern that I'm showing you. So that's number one. Then, he's 12 years old, almost two decades later, when he's in his 30s, the Holy Spirit produces, oh, well, here, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that happen whether you're empowered or not, whether the Holy Spirit's come upon you or not. This is the fruit. And the way that Peter says it is, he's given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his, see, that new nature that he's brought you, that divine nature. So make every effort to supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence. 
moral excellence with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with patient endurance, patient endurance with godliness. Notice all of this is you internally, you being transformed in his image. Godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you'll be in your knowledge. That'll say in your knowledge of Christ, but again, we're talking about Jesus right now. So he being led by the Holy Spirit, the more productive and useful he was becoming. See it? Because he was bearing fruit. So again, what we say is, born of the Spirit produces fruit. But now, 20 years later, empowered by the Spirit. One day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens were open, And the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. John the Baptist has been warned by God that the one that I'm talking about, the Messiah that's to come, that you're ushering in, you're going to know it's him when you see the Holy Spirit descend on him and stay. Okay? Now, remember, Jesus already had the Holy Spirit inside. So this is another thing, the Holy Spirit. And he, and many of you have heard a lot of this before, so you're kind of going, yeah, I've heard this, I've heard this. But again, we're trying to reestablish a foundation, and I need you to just kind of really process this in a deep way because we're about to get to why this is so important. Okay? As he was praying, the heavens opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Okay? Look, Jesus, after he's led into the wilderness, we'll get to that in a second, and then he comes back in the power of the Spirit, goes into the synagogue, opens the scroll, and reads this. God's Spirit is on me. He's chosen me to preach the message of good news to the poor sent me to announce pardon to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the burdened and battered free. He's going to do this ministry. He's going to do, look, he does not minister until he's been anointed, until he's been empowered. He has 30 plus years that he could have been doing ministry and he didn't. God makes that extraordinarily long period of time because in our lives, he's not going to wait 30 years before our salvation and our empowerment. We'll see that in a sec. But the bottom line is, is in Jesus' life, he accents something. He puts a highlighter through it. He points big neon signs at it. He says, look, there is salvation being born of the Spirit, and then there is empowerment, which is the same Spirit, but a totally different thing. See it? All right. So he's saying that we can do all this ministry. So the pattern is you're born of the Spirit and then you're empowered by the Spirit, which is to say manifest his gifts through us. All right, and we're going to see that Jesus did not minister in the things of the Holy Spirit because he was God, but rather because of the Holy Spirit that was upon him. And God's tried to make that really clear in Luke. Now, that's the same pattern that happens with us, the disciples. We're disciples, they're disciples. What happens is Jesus is crucified, then he's buried, then he's resurrected, and the same day that he's resurrected, the disciples are afraid in the upper room with locked doors, and Jesus suddenly appears amongst them. And then what he says is, peace be with you, don't be afraid anymore. And then he says, peace be with you a second time, as in I'm reconciling you to God, because now that Jesus has died for our sins, we can be made new, which is exactly what happens in this upper room. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the same God who breathed on a lump of clay and made him a living being, the same God who overshadowed Mary, has now overshadowed the disciples and made them new creatures. Right? Forty days later, forty days later, Jesus says a weird thing to them. If, I'm, if I got the Holy Spirit inside of me, I mean, you know, I can do anything, right? Except what Jesus says is, as they met and ate meals together, he told them that they were on no account to leave Jerusalem. They're saved. They're different people. They're learning from the Holy Spirit. And he tells them, do not leave Jerusalem, but you must wait for what the Father the promise. John baptized in water, you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, what's that referred to? The same baptism that Jesus underwent in the creek, right? Here comes the Holy Spirit down upon. What's going to happen in Acts 2? The Holy Spirit's going to fall down upon like the little graphic we showed. 
in fire and sound of a mighty rushing wind and so on to really make it clear that just like something came down and resided upon Jesus, something's going to come down and reside upon the disciples. See? In fact, he goes so far as to say, when the Holy Spirit will be able... Am I cutting out? What's that? Uh, you'll be able to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all over Judea, even the ends of the world. See what he says? He's saying, don't go out and be my witnesses until you've been empowered. Why? That sounds stupid. You know God. He's made you new. Tell everybody. Right? By the way, he's not saying you can't tell anybody that this has happened. But what he's saying is, there's a thing that you really have to come to grips with. And this is why we're working on this so hard. Because again, we're trying to build our foundation in a more sure way. And the issue is, there's a tension between who we are and who he is. And we have to become radically oriented to that difference. If we don't, there's going to be all kinds of problems. What I'm saying is born of the Spirit and the fruit is different than being empowered and having the gifts, having him move through you. Now, watch this. And you, some of you heard this before, so again, I apologize. And at the same time, I just need us to process this together as a whole group so that we're all on the same page. Think about what's bad about conflating you and God. The first time that you lay hands on people, on somebody, and they get healed, who gets the credit? Those of you who have heard this before can say it out. Who gets the credit? Jesus, right? The first time you lay hands on somebody, you know you're not a healer. First time you lay a hand on somebody and their arm grows out or their eyes open or their tongue's loose and they can talk or their ears are open and they can hear. First time you hear, you know, somebody's a cancer and then they don't have cancer anymore. First time that happens, you're freaked out. <laughs> you're not taking any glory from God. You're like, wow, what the heck was that? <laughs> right? You know, it's true. Whoa. <laughs> I'd heard of it in years, but now I see it. First time God gets the glory. What about the 200th time? What about the 2,000th time that you have laid hands on somebody and they have gotten healed? Who gets the glory then? We human beings are funny a lot. We can know things and yet not hold them. Not really. How many evangelists have gotten trapped in the pride and the glory that comes to them because they started allowing it to be that they were the ones that was doing this. You know what's really cool about right now in America? We don't actually have a whole bunch of big evangelists that are out there making a fool of themselves and God and everybody else. Right? We don't have the guy with the hair that was unnaturally, you know, it was like supernaturally held in that shelf, you know, that went out about four and a half feet and came back. And, right? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, I don't have to use any names, right? But, but the point is, you know, I mean, how is it that when the Bible says some people think that godliness is a way to gain, how is it that you get from that verse to owning mansions all over the world and several different private jets and flying around and, and living, living a, you know, 1% lifestyle? How do you get there? How do you, you know, uh, how many of them, you know, uh, poor Jimmy Schwaggard ends up in a hotel room with some girl. You know what I mean? Uh, Todd Bentley ends up with somebody that's not his wife. I mean, what, what is going on there? Well, pride goes before fall. And we have this funny little way of siphoning off the glory that's due God and God alone. We have this funny little way of thinking we somehow deserve something. After all, we're working so hard for him. After all, so many good things are happening. But, you know, I do a little sin. Yeah, I know God's gracious, and I don't like it, and I don't, you know, but, but after all, right? And we somehow make ourselves different than the ordinary person. And then we're just ripe pickings for a fall. And when that happens, now watch this. The first people that get hurt are the people that you're trying to heal because here's the truth. You can't heal anybody. So if you start siphoning off the glory, what God says is, if, if you want to do it on your own, fine, go ahead. I'll let you try. And then when you figure out that you really can't do it, I'll come again. Once you humble yourself, once you kneel, once you go down so that he can come up. See? 
But as long as you want to be up, fine, go ahead and try and heal them. And here's the really bad part. A lot of people flock to those sessions, and stuff really does happen. Now, a lot of the stuff that happens can't be verified. This was the thing that happened with Todd Bitley down in Lakewood, and it was a tragedy because Nightline came there, and they had healing after healing after healing after healing. And, and Nightline did it the most integrous way you could have done it. What they did is they went to Bentley himself, and they went to his staff, and they said, you know, you've got hundreds and hundreds of testimonies. That's great. But you know what? Pick five that you'd like us to look at. Just five. Just let us look at, just pick five. We'd like to verify that they're real. And I think Lightline was, they weren't going down there to do an expose on Todd. They were trying to say, if this is real, we're going to promote it. They gave them hundreds. They, they didn't give them five. And finally, the producers said, well, they're going to give us hundreds. Let's go through it. They looked at hundreds of cases, and they could not verify one miracle. People said they got healed and testified up front that they got healed, and then they went to go find them, and they were dead. Or they were back to where they were. Psychosomatic. There's something happened in the thing that people thought they were healed. I'm not saying they were being fake. This deception stuff, the whole point about deception is you don't know it's deception. If you knew it was deception, you wouldn't do it. You believe it's true. Well-meaning. Sincere. Seems and looks like God. Just not. It's tragic. And people are dying instead of getting healed. So that's a big problem, don't you think? About conflating these two things and getting it wrong. But here's another one. It trashes you. <laughs> because you end up with all those homes and all those affairs. And it kills you. Not to say there's not repentance that can be had there. But you get the drift? One of the guys that I, I just, I don't even know if he's doing still well or not, but who was the guy that had Melody Land or what was the name of that thing? Who was that? Jim Baker. You know, Jim Baker was in prison. <laughs> How's that? For what he'd done in the name of God. And he realized all of a sudden that he was just wrong about his theology, and he really repented. And as far as I know, I think he's still doing very well and very real, and he's really dialed back. Now, I don't know if that's still true or not. You never know. But I hope it's true. So I'm not saying you can't make a big mistake and come back. Okay? But this kills you. This destroys you. Jimmy Schwagger, never the same. You get the drift? It's bad for you. But you want to know? I don't know if it's the worst thing because they're all so bad. But you want to know what it does? And here's the irony of it. God told us in the Bible what a problem this was by showing us a people who had become prideful. They were called the Corinthians. They were ministering in all the gifts, and they'd gotten them twisted up in their head in a way that was building them up into a place of pride. And now watch this. The very gifts that God was bringing in order to try and show people his nature and his goodness and his love, they were using to build themselves up in pride. And instead of their gifts bringing people to God, it was chasing them away from God, as God says through Paul in Scripture. This stuff is not new. People getting it wrong is not new. It started right at the very beginning. And what God says is, if you congregation, believing outsiders, as you're all praying in tongues and puffing yourself up, competing with one another and showing off and doing all this stuff, in unintelligible to each other and to them, won't they get out of there as fast as they can? <laughs> right? right? This is not a joke. This need to be rigorous about what is God and what is you, I want to say I think that's the heart of the Christian walk. Honestly, if you want to move in power, that's the heart of it because it's just so nuanced. In fact, let me show you a little nuance on it, just one example of it. But here's a little, here's a little nuance about this subtle form of confusing us with him. Jesus says, before he's done it, he's anointed me to preach the, new, the gospel to the poor, to heal people, to set captives free. What's the response of the people hearing that? 
How do they respond? How can this be? Isn't this Joseph's son? Can I paraphrase that for you? Here's, here's what they're saying. You? <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I won't do you. Okay, sorry. Me? That guy? Really? When you think of Jesus, here's, I think there's this temptation to think about him this way. He was the captain of the football team, because, of course, he's the star quarterback. And he's the debate captain. And he's the president of the school, for heaven's sakes. And, you know, what else is he, right? I mean, he's like the person that everybody would look up to. That's who Jesus was, right? This little 12-year-old whiz kid, right, who was good at everything and all this kind of stuff. Here's what the problem is. The Bible says exactly the opposite of that. Watch. The servant Jesus grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him. Now listen to this. Nothing to cause us to take a second look. Here's what God is saying. I made him utterly ordinary. So that when I did what I did, people would see me, not him. Do you see it? Utterly ordinary. The people in Jesus' time are going, Jesus, the Joseph, the carpenter's son? Go over to Zephaniah here. Zephaniah, this is a good guy. He's big and tall and strong and handsome and he's wise and he's smart and everybody seems to follow him. But we can see God anointing him to do great things. Because as human beings, we always conflate ourselves and God. We anthropomorphize our dogs. I love you, Chris, but sorry. What they really want is food. And dogs love you because you carry food in your purse. I love you. I'm not saying that again. <laughs> they love you because they're, they love you. Is Chris even here? There you are. I'm sorry, Chris. They love you because of you. If you've never carried any food, every dog in the world would come up to you and hug you and love you and lick your face. Okay? But have the food because it'll keep it going. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I know, I know. I, just, I get the shovel going and I just start digging and digging and I just get myself in all kinds of trouble. We do that though, right? We anthropomorphize. We make God in our image. We make ourselves in his image, which is deamorphization or whatever, right? What God did was is he made him utterly ordinary. You see, what Jesus did and what, he, what makes it clear is he says he had equal status with God. You know what that means? He was God. <laughs> Jesus was God. But he didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. That he had to cling to his deity. Instead, what he did was, when the time came, he set aside, he emptied himself of the privileges of deity and took on the status of a person. No, actually, what's it say? A slave. By what he suffered, he learned obedience. He didn't just become a person. He became what people really are, enslaved. Did you see that? That's what he did. He became enslaved too. And then he showed us the way out. He showed us how to live that life. He showed us how to be led and taught and grown by the Holy Spirit, transformed by him, and then to be empowered so as to be able to do his will. Is that right? We had a guy who... Uh, I, we didn't know him at this point in time. He was a tremendous musician at Northwest College. And he was so good that as a freshman, they made him head of a worship band. And then eventually he became kind of head of the whole worship program and so on. When he graduated, he put together a band. And they went to Europe and they were doing worship. And that thought was is that they would become a big, big worship band in the world, right? Now, they went to Europe. They did this worship thing. It went very, very well. When they came home, every single musician on this band sold all their instruments and never played worship, stopped playing worship at all. Every one of them. One of them, the drummer, started coming here. And he talked him, it took him a long time to talk this guy back into a church, basically. And he talked this other guy, this really, really good guitar player, to come back to church. And he came here, and we went out to lunch, and we got to be very, very good friends. And, and what we did was, is I said, why just, why, what happened? And he said, here's what happened. He said, I'm such a good guitar player that, you know, Dave Matthew comes out with a great lick or some popular song has got this great guitar lick. And you know, when you hear a good song, you know what it does to you, right? 
I mean, when you hear a song that you really love, doesn't it do something to you emotionally, physically, literally, hormonally, it does something to you? You feel something, literally, right? A good song, a song you really love, you know, like a Rolling Stone lick, for those of you who are completely unsaved and still unredeemed. Okay, you know what I mean? Start it up. You know, right? You can just hit certain licks and it just does a thing in you, right? And he said, what I did was, is I would take those licks and I would get them down perfectly. And then I would bend them just enough so that they couldn't be recognized as the lick, but they were so familiar that they would trigger the response. I did that. And he said, I didn't see anything wrong with that. Why not? It makes the song better. He said, the problem was, here I am in these European audiences, and when they come up and tell me what was particularly anointed, they always told me about the licks that I'd done that they didn't know were a lick. They didn't know. And they thought that was God's anointing. And he said, I became convinced that there may be an anointing of God, but I don't know what it is. And I want to say kudos to him. He was right. Because that's not the anointing of God. And so he came here, and we just worked through it. And I mean, it took him, those of you who know this guy and know the story, what did it take? Maybe eight, nine months of just working with him and him watching and us talking about worship and just kind of going through this process together and just kind of looking at the difference between musicians, musicians' skill, natural abilities, and actual anointing. And all of a sudden, after about nine months, he went, I can tell the difference again. <laughs> Not again, for the first time. I can tell the difference. I can tell what's natural skill and what's actually God. And so he got up and he started worshiping, leading worship for us. And it was wonderful. That he, he was a great worship leader. And he ended up taking a job basically down in California and leading worship at a Northern California church. And we're still friends and we still talk and everything else. But you get the drift. You see that? This is a guy who learned that in the end it's really tough to keep you and him separate. Because the Holy Spirit's so intimate that we tend to meld them just a little. And then a little more. And then a little more. And then all of a sudden one day we're like, how the heck did I get here? He must increase. I must decrease. This is what John is saying when he says, I got to get out of the picture so that Jesus can increase. But I think that the spirit of it is true even in our internal lives. I, I, here's, what, here's what I have found, and I know this to be an absolute truth. The more that I humble myself, the more that God can be exalted through me. Period. Absolute relationship. The more I exalt myself, the less that God can. Again, a lot of wise people in here, you know this. But we're trying to get everybody on the same page so that we're building this foundation properly. I've just got a couple more things here that I want to do. God is fully aware of the problem. Wilderness experiences safeguard us. Jesus is born of the Holy Spirit, lives 30 years. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. What's the first thing that he does? Led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Guess what? time-honored tradition throughout Scripture. You do realize the Holy Spirit empowering people to do His will is not New Testament only. You do realize it happens all the way through the Old Testament. Everybody who does anything significant that we hear about their story, who they are, is said to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that's how they did what they did throughout the whole of the Old Testament. This just happens all the way through. Okay, from Bezalel, an artist, to Moses, and the way that he leads the people, to, the, to uh, Joshua, to the judges, to Samuel the prophet, to uh, Saul even, to David, to Solomon, to other kings, to Elijah and Elisha, to prophets, all the way through. Anointing, 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 uh, anointed by the Holy Spirit to do what God did. In the whole of the Old Testament, it's, it's such a great Holy Spirit book. People don't think of it that way. They think Holy Spirit's New Testament. The Old Testament is an awesome Holy Spirit book because you see God moving on failed, flawed people and accomplishing His will. Now, they do muddy it up, right, by their failings and flaws. Oftentimes, right? 
But here's how God keeps a person from muddying it up as, most as, as well as possible. Here's what the truth is. Every story that we have in the Old Testament where we have a person anointed and they end well, which is tons of them, except for two, every story the person has a wilderness experience. How many days was Jesus led into the wilderness for? Does that remind you of anything in the Old Testament? Forty years. How long? What, what is that? What does 40 years mean to you? The time that Moses was in the wilderness. <laughs> Being emptied. Remember, Jesus emptied himself. But we need to be brought to our end. We need to be emptied. We need to be stripped bare. We need to come to understanding the end of ourselves. Here's the key to a wilderness experience. This is so important because there's so many people that are going through these kinds of things all the time. And what you're thinking is God is mad at me or this. You know, God may be mad at you and you may be doing something else. But when God is taking you through a wilderness experience to strip you bare, here's the key to it. You will not prevail. <laughs> you will think that you can, just like a movie, right? The movie is literally a three-act structure in a movie. Is, it, it works in movies because it, it is the reality of our life and how God works with us. And what happens is, is things in a movie, it goes from worse to worse to worse, but you still think there's some way to get out of it. There's still some way you can get out of it. And the transition from act two to act three, which is the final act in the thing, is when something happens to where there's no hope for the character that you've identified with. They're sunk. There's no hope. And then God shows up. Now, in the movie, it's something that is like miraculous. It's something that is like deliverance. In our lives, what he's doing is, in our wilderness experience, he takes us down. Can I just say something? I've gone through this big time when I lost everything. And we're talking about, uh, well, 10 years was the major experience. It's been... I can't even do the math right in my head now. It's been probably 30 years since it happened. And I'm still experiencing overhang from it today in, in significant ways. I walk with a limp. You know that expression? That comes from Jacob who went through a wilderness experience where he wanted God to bless him and he knew something. He knew that I do not have what it takes and I have to be blessed by you, God. And so he wrestled with God, which is to say he knew that God was his only hope and he held on to him and he held on to him and he held on to him. He said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And finally God said, and look at the accent on this, look at the highlight. God said, now that you've held on, I will bless you. But you're also going to limp. And he dislocated his hip. And I just want to say something. I don't think that you can get things right in life without walking with a limp. Because I just think that we end up raising up again. <laughs> we have this way of coming back from the dead. Right? But if you keep walking with a limp, every time you take a step, you go, oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, that's right. And it takes you back down to where you're, right? You can always tell somebody that's in the middle of these battles because they still think there's some way out. <laughs> and the whole key to them is there is no way out. You've got to just be there. Mine ended, literally ended, when I was driving to a job that I hated so much I could, I could literally, I, I'd worked a job for years and I still could pull the car over and puke. I hated this job so much. I'm not going to tell you what it is because somebody in here may do that. It was an honorable job. This was my immaturity. Okay, and I now see it as an honorable job, even though it's done in a dishonorable way, most of the time. But I hated this job. And all of a sudden, God had worked it into me so much that I finally realized this may be my plight for the rest of my life. And I was driving to work one day, and all of a sudden I went, and this was for real. I went, you know what? If this is what the rest of my life is, if I'm going to do this for the rest of my life, I'm okay. There's things I can do. I see people that I've learned to love. I see people that need help. I see things that I can do. If this is where you want me, I'm okay. it still brings me to tears. 
because I walk with a limp. Now, I want to say thank you, God, that, that that was literally the day where he said, okay, now I want to do some other things with you. And it wasn't but a month that I was out of that job and doing something else entirely that led me right here today. But that was the process right here. Wilderness experiences safeguard us. They make us wholly dependent upon him and not ourselves. So you see the pattern? You see the flyover? There's just one last stop. What is it? The one we've already looked at. So that we can manifest him and not us. Here's what Jesus says. God's spirit is on me. He's chosen me to preach the message of the good news to the poor. He sent me to announce pardon to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. To set the burden and battered free. Can I make it clear what this does not say? God, the spirit of the Lord is upon me so that I can have a better life. So that I can be more happy. So that I can be more blessed. Let me make it clear, when you're really doing the things of the Lord in a completely submitted way, it is joyful beyond. So I'm not saying you're going to have a crappy life just because you're serving God. But I am saying there might be moments when it looks like that. Are we mature and do we understand that he uses that? But the bottom line is, is that what it's not saying is, is anything for him. What's it all about, Alfie? Other people, Right? Serving other people, healing them, not you, healing them. In fact, I love this when it talks about the gifts of the Spirit, which is what we're talking about when we're talking about being anointed. The message says it this way. Each person is giving something to do that shows who God is. Everyone gets in on it. Everyone benefits. All kinds of things are handed out by the Spirit to all kinds of people. The variety is wonderful. Wise counsel, clear understanding, simple trust, healing the Spirit. The miraculous acts of distinguishing between spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues. You know what that list is, right? Word of wisdom, word of knowledge. It's just the message's way of saying things that, right? They're like that, you know, right? Okay. I was going to say it's like that guitar riff, but also, and I said that probably puts Eugene Peterson in a bad light. <laughs> Here's the line that ca there's the speed bump in that passage. Each person is giving something to do that shows who God is. <laughs> That's what a charismatic body looks like, right? That's what a charismatic body looks like. Each person is being given something to reveal yet something more about God. No one person can reveal the fullness of who God is. Because we're a family, we're a community. We're a body, we're an organism, and everybody has different gifts, and the Holy Spirit distributes as he wills. And what he does is take us where only he can take us together. Here's why I say this. Here's what I'd love to do. We're done, right? I just showed you the overall pattern. You saw born again, and then you saw a distinct empowerment. You've got to keep those two separate. And then you see he's going to give you wilderness experiences to train you up so that you don't end up conflating them nonetheless. And then he uses you to minister to people, right? And as you minister to people, you actually come into places of incredible need. And so you go back to needing the Holy Spirit to teach and guide you, and you need the Holy Spirit to come through you more. And you see that the whole thing just gets into this wonderful vortex of God doing miraculous things through you. But having said that, I'm done, and here's what I want to do. I did tell you that we were going to talk about healing, and we were going to talk about how to heal. And I've tried to lay the pattern and the foundation of how to heal, and now here's what I'm going to do. I would love to sit here and tell you that I'm now going to tell you how to get people healed every single time. Or at least more than you are, have been doing previously. Right? And I really wanted to do that. And I really sought God really hard for, God, what can I tell people about how to actually move in this stuff better? And you know what God's response back to me was? Who are you? Who are you compared to who are we? Together. This whole thing that God's doing in our church of raising up people. I have a challenge for you. This is for real now. If you don't have a piece of paper and pencil, could you please get a piece of paper and pencil in front of you? Okay? If you need something, raise your hands and thank you ushers for helping people get something in their hands. Because I got a challenge for you. Here's what we're going to do.
What we're going for is, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works that I've done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. But I want to tell you how we're going to get to the fulfillment of that verse. Francis Chan says, sometimes we fail because we're trying to do as an individual what Jesus calls us to do as a group, as the church. Justine posted that a long time ago. Don Owens uh, posted it this morning. I had not ever heard that before, but it was the perfect summation to what I was trying to say right now. Sometimes we fail. I would fail if I told you about how to minister and do healings and miracles because it would just be me and it would be incredibly limited because it's just me. But what would happen if this entire body picked up the challenge of trying to figure out why it is that we're not moving in the miraculous more when we know in our hearts we're supposed to be? What would happen if instead of me telling you what to do and you sort of receiving it and having a revelation and then walking out and forgetting what it was on Tuesday, what would happen if instead of us taking a moment right now where we prayed for five minutes and let God tell us and then that was the extent of it because again we walked out and forgot it by Tuesday, what would happen if we actually worked this entire week and I'm asking you to do this for real. What would happen if you went to the Lord and said why are we not experiencing the fullness that we should be? Pray about it. Here's what I am asking you to do too, by the way, right there. Please do not send me the formula that you have that hasn't been working. Because a lot of us have formulas that don't work, and yet we still have the formula. Okay? So please don't do that. Please understand that your formula is not working. If it is working, if you're somebody who 100% of the time, or let's just be generous, 80% of the time, people are actually being healed the way that you thought that they should be and so on, then by all means, share your formula. But if you're something less than that, I suspect that all of us are something less than that on an order of degrees, then what I'm asking you to do is to lay aside your formula. And I'm asking to let the Holy Spirit, not let the Holy Spirit, that's the wrong way to put it. I'm asking for you to press in to the Holy Spirit and ask Him why. And when you get a revelation, even if it's not a complete revelation, when you get a revelation, please write me a note. Thank you for not sending me a novel thank you for not sending me somebody else's book. If there's a revelation in that book, feel free to tell me it came from the book, but then put it into words that I could read in a couple of minutes. You understand? Because what I'm asking for is I'm literally asking for this entire church to press into the Lord about this exact question. And I'm asking us to not just let this be a sermon that goes in one ear and by Tuesday is out the other. Um, how, are we ever going to overcome this distance, this disconnect between what we know God wants to do and what's actually happening if we don't pursue it faithfully? Are we? No. There's a big disconnect, and it's been there for a long time. It's not just going to go away. What's going to happen is, is that people are going to faithfully press into him. And then they're going to faithfully press in some more. And they're going to faithfully press in some more. And then they're going to faithfully press in some more. And then we're going to hear a revelation next week from you and 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 from you. And we're going to use those. And we're going to hear about those. And we're going to build on the foundation that we just laid. So that together we're building the house. And the house is not going to be the construction of mine so that you can look at it and say, isn't that pretty? It's going to be us involved in the construction of that house because God wants us all to do it together, not just because there's more viewpoints, but because when you're involved in the building of the house, you have ownership in it. It makes it more beautiful because you own it. Because you've gotten a piece. You see it? Does this make sense? Are you going to do it? Because we're just about to take communion and what I'm asking you to do, and I'm being totally serious about this. I love you. If you want to take communion, go ahead and do it. But I'm asking you to consider something. I'd like to take communion today on the basis of, are you in on this? Because this isn't just next week. This is a journey that we're starting together. And if you're in on this, I'm asking you to take communion. If you're not in on this and you don't want to be embarrassed, go ahead and take communion, but say in your heart, I'm not in. Okay, it's between you and the Lord, right? I'm not trying to get in the middle of that. But if you're in on this, I'm asking us to do something. The band's going to come up here. and you go, go ahead and come up now. And I want you to play some music behind softly because I, I am going to take just two or three minutes right now to get the ball rolling. That's why I want you to have a piece of paper and pencil in hand. 
I want you to just go to the Lord right now and just say, I want the initial thought about this. Talk to me about what I might have. And then write down that initial thought and then take that home and start praying about it. Start seeking him about it. Make it something real throughout this week. And when you get a revelation you think is worthy of passing on, you think it'd be helpful to other people, send it in. Sound good? So like I say, just take a couple of minutes right now. It's only going to be a couple. And then we're going to take communion and take an offering and we're going to do our final song. But do you get it? Go ahead.